Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Cultural Podcast. A podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you once again for listening. On today's episode, we'll start with a review of our last-minute victory over Udinese on the weekend. In part two, we'll check in on the table and how our competitors did. And in part 3, we'll preview our midweek Coppa Italia match against Empoli. So let's start with our match on Sunday against Udinese. Here's how it went. Two sides out of form, looking to a return to fortunes. Udinese have taken just three points in the last five matches. Napoli just one point better off than that. Fabian Ruiz might fancy a shot. Then it's Di Lorenzo. This is Lozano. Is that a penalty? Lozano certainly played the ball. Bonifazzi didn't. And it's the collision between the two knees there. The right knee of Bonifazzi and the right knee of Irvin Lozano. And Napoli have a penalty. Up steps Insigne. And he scores. Top corner once more. Top draw. Lasagna. Gives chase, Lasagna's got there, and Udinese a level. Terrible defending from Napoli. After extra time, so it's just Napoli that will be playing in the domestic cup in midweek. But in terms of Serie A, Napoli have been pegged back here. So a heavily reshuffled backline for the Azzurri. So a heavily reshuffled backline for the Azzurri. One apiece might have been a harsh scoreline for Udinese. The defeat looks very unfair. The home fans will be, no doubt, feeling short-changed, but it's a big win for Napoli. 
So as you heard, Napoli won this match 2-1 on a penalty kick from Lorenzo Insigne and a late winner from Temoy Bakayoko after Kevin Lasagna equalized for Udinese. This was another really poor performance. Amir Rachmani really struggled in his first full start for Napoli and only lasted a half. Rodrigo Dopal completely dominated our midfield, exposing us time and time again on the counterattack. Our center backs simply could not handle the pace of Kevin Lasagna, who got behind them with ease. Fortunately, Alex Meretz made a number of important saves to keep Napoli in the match. The jury is still out on which keeper is better with his feet, but Meretz showed that he's perfectly capable of making saves with his feet. And yet, Meretz was the second best keeper on the night. This game probably wouldn't have been so close had it not been for some heroics by Juan Musso. He made some incredible saves when Napoli created legitimate goal-scoring opportunities. Even though our midfield looked very static at times, we still managed to generate quite a few shots. Unfortunately, our captain struggled to hit the target, but really, he was the only one taking shots. We'll cover all of that in this review, and we'll revisit our three keys to the match. But first, let's take a look at the starting lineups. Udinese had four changes compared to our predicted 11. Luca Gotti lined up in his usual 3-5-2 formation with Juan Musso in goal. Kevin Bonifazi had his turn in the middle of the three center backs with Samir to his left and Rodrigo Becao to his right. Jens Strieger Larsen moved over to left wing back and Nahuel Molina started over Marvin Ziegler at right wing back. Roberto Pereira usually starts in the center of the midfield, but with Fernando Forestieri ruled out, Pereira moved up to play next to Kevin Lasagna, and Toge Arslan played in the center of the midfield. Rolando Mandragora started over Wallace at center left, and Rodrigo De Paul played at center right. Napoli had one change to our predicted 11. Gennaro Gattuso lined up in the 4-2-3-1 once again with Alex Meret in goal. Amir Rachmani finally got his first start alongside Kostas Manolas at centre-back. We had Nikola Maksimovic starting. Alcide Kusai started at left-back and Giovanni Di Lorenzo started at right-back. Fabian Ruiz and Tiamoy Bakayoko lined up in the double pivot. Lorenzo Insigne played on the left wing and Chucky Lozano played on the right wing. And Piotr Zielinski started in the 10th spot behind Andrea Petagna. Alright, so those were the starting lineups. Next, let's review our three keys to the match. Our first key to the match was that we needed to be more clinical. I'm going to call this one a push, but just barely. We had 15 shot attempts, but only 6 were on target, 7 were off target, and 2 were blocked. According to the official match report, we had 8 scoring chances, and by my count, 4 of them were really good ones. Had it not been for some outstanding plays by Juan Musso, we probably would have scored a few more goals. He made three incredible saves in this match. The first came on an acrobatic flying header from Chucky Lozano. Lozano was pretty good in this match once again. Besides that chance, he also won the penalty. Full credit to Samir though, I thought he did a fantastic job shutting down Lozano with his physical play. The second big save Musso made was on the ensuing corner kick after Petania redirected Lozano's shot on target, and the third big save he made was in the second half on Zielinski's volley. Immediately after that save, Insigne had his best chance of the match but missed the far post, and I agree with our friend Joey on this one. Sometimes you wish that Insigne would just put his head down and smash the ball rather than trying to curl every shot just inside the post. Insigne had the majority of our shot attempts, but only put two of them on target. He had two shots blocked, both on the same play, and the rest simply missed the target. A big concern I have with Insigne is you can see when he misses a golden opportunity to score, it gets in his head and it affects his play. 
I wouldn't necessarily say he loses his confidence because he does continue to shoot, which is a good sign, whereas a lot of players who lose confidence stop shooting altogether, but I think he gets frustrated with himself, and that frustration only grows with each additional shot that he misses. We should give Insignia credit though for the penalty kick, though we don't get many penalty kicks to begin with, that's one area where he's been consistently really good for us. He changed up his routine a little bit on this one, he changed up his routine a little bit for this one, he used Jorginho's delay right before taking the shot and picked the top corner. The reason why I have this key to the match as a push though is because of Bakayoko's goal. You can't possibly be more clinical than by scoring the game-winning goal in stoppage time. For a team that rarely gets penalties and is terrible from set pieces, we somehow managed to score both ways in this match. The second key to the match was we needed Piotr Zielinski to be as good as Rodrigo DePaul. Unfortunately, I don't think Zielinski was as good as DePaul was in this one. I don't think Zielinski was terrible either. He had that volley stopped by Musso and he had a few moments where he dazzled with his dribbling, but there were also long stretches of the match where I didn't really notice him. That holds true for our entire midfield. Zielinski plays higher up the field, so I don't expect him to bear as much of the responsibility on the defensive end. That's more on Fabian and Bakayoko, who both struggled to stop the counterattack. When we had the ball, I thought our midfielders were very static. Our friend Gianluca quite rightly pointed out that we often play the ball back to the keeper because we don't have other options. When we had the ball, I thought our midfielders were very static. Our friend Gianluca quite rightly pointed out that we often play the ball back to the keeper because we don't have many other options. On the Lozano header that Musso stopped, that play started with Zielinski dropping deep to show for the ball and then playing a quick pass to Bakayoko. That's all you need to do. All of a sudden, there is a ton of space on the right side for Di Lorenzo to run onto and play the cross in, but we didn't do enough of that in this match. Zielinski also covered more ground than any other player on the pitch at 12.44 kilometers. DePaul wasn't far behind covering just over 12 kilometers, but DePaul was much more involved in the game than Zielinski was. He seemed to be involved in just about every counterattack and also had a couple of shots of his own that missed the target. Fortunately, Udinese were less clinical than we were, or this could have been another loss. That's actually been a problem for Udinese all season. Heading into this match, they had only 17 goals for, which was only better than Genoa and Crotone. Finally, our third key to the match was that we couldn't let up, and that meant taking it to Udinese for the entire 90 minutes. We failed miserably in this regard. This key to the match was based on the assumption that we would be in complete control of the game, but that was hardly the case. At best, this was an even match, and I think you can make a pretty strong case that Udinese were actually the better side on the whole. Statistically, the match was pretty even. We had roughly the same number of shots and the same number of chances, but I thought Udinese dominated the midfield and completely owned our back line. There was nothing for us to let up on because we didn't have our foot on the gas in the first place. The way we were playing in the second half, it was very difficult for me to see how we were going to score. I certainly didn't feel any better when Fernando Llorente replaced Andrea Petania. That substitute made very little sense to me. I just don't see what Llorente offers that Petania doesn't. I suppose Llorente offers fresh legs, but we also had Politano on the bench. I would have much rather brought in Politano to play on the right wing and shifted Lozano to striker. I can only assume from the fact that Politano didn't play that he was nursing his calf which he appeared to injure against Spezia. I also didn't expect Bakayoko to score his first of the season, let alone from a set piece and on a cross by Mario Rui, but I'll definitely take it. So those were our three keys to the match. 
We didn't achieve any of them, but sometimes you win games you don't deserve to win, and sometimes you lose games you don't deserve to lose, like the Inter game. Before we close this review, I do want to talk about Napoli's defending in this match. I thought this was our worst defensive performance of the season, even worse than our 3-1 defeat to Milan. Let's start with Amir Rachmani, who couldn't have dreamt of a worse full debut. He made a couple of wayward passes. Of course, there was the pass back to Meret that led to the lasagna goal. He should have done better there, but Insignia also didn't help by putting Rachmani in that situation in the first place, and it wasn't an easy ball to control either. Rachmani also played a pass straight out for a corner, though it's probably better that he did, because he would have put Meret in a difficult situation as well, had that pass been more accurate. On a few occasions, Udinese players got behind him, and he just didn't have the pace to catch up, though there are very few centre-backs in the league that can keep up with Kevin Lasagna. And he got beat by Lasagna just before the half, though I thought he was shoved in the back on that play. There's no doubt this was an awful performance, but it's definitely too early to judge. We need to give him more time. I actually think this performance was partially on Gattuso for not playing Rachmani enough. I mentioned in our preview that we've had 5 matches where we've scored 4 or more goals. We should have been bringing players in off the bench in those matches. Why not bring in Rachmani for the final 10-20 minutes of those matches? Gattuso always says that with this schedule, we're not playing football, we're playing something else. Well, why not rest players when you have those opportunities and allow others some time to play? I also don't think this was the ideal situation for Rachmani, particularly after Manolas left the game after the first goal. All of a sudden, we're playing with Rachmani and Manolas together. With four center backs, there are six possible center back pairings, and that's literally the last one we would choose to use. I do have to give Gattuso credit for the change that he made at the break. I was hoping to see either Kaladu Koulibaly or Diego Deme come in to shore up the back if either were fit to play, but it seems that neither were ready, at least not for a full half. Deme did make an appearance but only for the final few minutes of the match. Instead, Gattuso took Rachmani out, he moved Di Lorenzo to the middle, shifted Kusai to right back, and brought in Mario Rui to play left back. I never would have thought of that, but in hindsight, it actually made perfect sense. We were getting beat by pace and Di Lorenzo is certainly quicker than Rachmani is. Also with Di Lorenzo picking up a yellow in this match, we knew he would not be available for our next match in Serie A, which is against Fiorentina, although we do have the Coppa Italia midweek. Gattuso commented on this decision after the match. He said he felt sorry for Rachmani, but sometimes a coach has to make a tough decision. Gattuso added though that Rachmani will still get a chance. I'd like to see him play against Empoli, but we'll talk more about that in part 3. Now, this poor defensive showing wasn't solely on our back line, it was also on our midfield. Bakayoko and Fabian got beat time and time again. Again, the problem there was a lack of pace. Deme wasn't fit to start and Lobotka seems to be out of favor. After the Spezia game, Gattuso talked about how we panic at the back and we saw some of that in this match too. At times, we looked very disorganized at the back. Udinese had a counter-attack in the 26th minute where our defenders and midfielders desperately sprinted back without any regard for position. That resulted in too many Napoli players bunched up in our own box and Mandragora was left unmarked and free to shoot at the top of the box. Fortunately, Koulibaly appears ready to come back. That would be huge with Manolas potentially missing some time with a strained thigh. Our best defender in this match was Alex Meret. Udinese's finishing was poor, they definitely should have aimed for the corners, but that doesn't take away from the quality of saves that he made. Meret is technically a very sound keeper, he's quick off his line, and he puts himself in a position to make saves. 
I definitely think he's a better shot stopper than David Ospina. Ospina's not bad, and he has had some really impressive performances, but I think technically Meret is better. He made 8 saves in this match, and most of them were with his feet. The last thing I'll say is that we need to play with a bit more toughness, a bit more grinta, which is something I said after the Spezia match as well. Gattuso had another classic quote after the match. He said, Napoli always want to be beautiful, but sometimes being a bit ugly is a good thing. You can't always be Brad Pitt with blonde hair and blue eyes. Sometimes you need to be a bit ugly, like me. That will do for part one. In part two, we'll check in on the other action from the round. Next, we'll talk about match day 17. Heading into this round, we were sitting in 6th place, 9 points back of Milan, 8 points back of Inter, 5 points back of Roma, 2 points back of Juventus, and 1 point back of Sassuolo. We were level with Atalanta on 28 points and 3 points clear of 8th place Lazio. Hellas Verona were in 9th place on 24 points, and Benevento were in 10th place on 21 points. So let's start with Milan against Torino. Milan beat Torino 2-0 on goals from Rafael Leao and Frank Hesse. This was another impressive win from a depleted Milan squad. Hakan Chalanoglu started on the bench after picking up an ankle injury in the Juve match. Milan are especially depleted in the midfield. That's why Davide Calabria played in the midfield against Juventus. With Sandro Tonali returning from suspension, Calabria moved back to his regular position at right back. Milan opened the scoring about midway through the first half. Once again, Teo Hernandez played an important role on this goal. He charged through the middle of the field, which is something we've seen from him in the last few games. The exchange between Teo, Brahim Diaz, and Rafael Leao was lovely. The weight on the pass from Diaz perfectly set up the shot for Leao, and he made no mistake. That was Leao's sixth on the season, which tied him with Chalanoglu for second most goals on the team, behind only Zlatan. Speaking of Zlatan, he made his first appearance later in this match. He didn't do much to influence the game, but that's a great sign for Milan. Between COVID and injuries, Ibrahimovic has only played in six matches prior to this short appearance, and yet he's still tied for fourth in the race for Capocannoniere. Milan were the better side in this match and fully deserved the win, but I have to say I thought they were quite fortunate as well. Milan were helped by the VAR twice in this match. In the first half, Milan were awarded a penalty for a foul on Brahim Diaz in the box. Now, this was a very, very close play. On one camera angle, it looked like Belotti got the ball, and on another angle, it looked like he didn't. It also appeared that Brahim was going to ground before Belotti got there, and the contact was merely incidental. But the reason I think Milan were fortunate here was because the call in the field was no penalty, which means there needs to be a clear and obvious error to change the call to a penalty. And based on what I've just described, I don't think there was enough clear and obvious evidence to overturn that decision. 
Then in the second half, Torino were awarded a penalty only to have it taken away. Simone Verdi kicked the back of Tonali's leg trying to take the shot. Now, looking at this play in isolation, I do think the decision to reverse the penalty was correct. Tonali was merely running beside Verdi, and in fact Tonali got hurt on the play, he had to be taken off on a stretcher. We'll have to see if his injury is serious, but you could even argue that Tonali was fouled here. My gripe with this is more of a personal one. The play looked very similar to the one that saw Barcelona awarded a penalty against us in the second leg of our Champions League tie last season. Now, I know the Champions League and Serie A are officiated differently, but they were very similar situations. Milan were also fortunate that Ricardo Rodriguez's free kick just before the half smashed the bar and stayed out. Ironically, the last time he scored a goal in Serie A was when he played for Milan. But like I said, Milan were the better team, at least for most of this match. Torino played well in the final quarter of the match, trying to get back into it, but Milan defended well. As we approach the midway point of the season, I think Simon Kjaer needs to be in the conversation for Serie A's Best Defender Award. He made a slide tackle in the first half that reminded me of the type of tackle that Koulibaly makes, and I've said numerous times on this podcast that I think Koulibaly has the best slide tackle in all of Europe. So for Milan, this was a nice response after losing to Juventus, and it ensured that they stayed atop the table. That was important with second place Inter playing a tough match against Roma in the early game on Sunday. This game finished 2-2. Lorenzo Pellegrini opened the scoring for Roma. Milan Skriniar equalized before Ashraf Hakimi put Inter ahead. And then late in the match, Gianluca Mancini leveled the score. This was a really entertaining match and probably one where both fan bases were left disappointed by the end of it. I thought Roma were the better side for most of the match, so in that sense Romanisti may not be happy with the result. On the other hand, at 2-1 it looked like this was going to be another Fonseca loss to a top club, so a draw may not be a terrible result. Roma opened the scoring in the 17th minute. Once again, Roma scored on the counter-attack. The play started with an excellent tackle by Jordan Vertu on Nicolo Barella. Three passes later, the ball was in the back of the goal. Henrik Mkhitaryan picked up another assist. He is the current league leader in assists. Vertu came close to doubling Roma's lead in the first half, but Samir Handanovic made an excellent save and one that would prove to be an important one. I thought Roma did a good job defending Inter in the first half, especially Chris Smalling. They were very organized, the backline pushed up in sync, and most importantly, they took away the wings, which limited Inter to very few scoring opportunities. Inter's most dangerous chance came in the middle of the field after Hakimi played Arturo Vidal through, but he hit the ball first time and completely missed the mark. Lautaro had a chance as well, but he mistimed his leap and couldn't get over the ball with his header. Credit to Antonio Conte though for recognizing that Inter were more threatening in the middle of the field. Inter came out of the break with a vengeance and they attacked up the middle. Lautaro had a couple of chances to pull one back early in the second half, first on a header and then from a cross from Lukaku. Lukaku made an excellent turn to get in between Mancini and Rick Karsdorp before playing a dangerous ball across the face of the goal. Somehow Paolo Lopez made the save on Lautaro. Only a few minutes later though, Milan Skriniar equalized from a corner kick. Inter's center backs continue to play an important role in their attack. Skriniar scored the game winner against Hellas Verona and Stefan De Vrij scored Inter's only goal in the loss to Sampdoria. Another player that has been scoring a lot lately is Ashraf Hakimi and he did it again here. He scored his sixth of the season and his third in Inter's last five matches to put Inter ahead and what a goal it was. Hakimi cut into his left foot and fired off the bar and in. Lopez had absolutely no chance on that shot. The reason Interisti will be disappointed with this result is because shortly after that goal, Conte changed his approach to protect the lead, which is a very old school Italian manager thing to do. 
Inter were dominating the match, but after Conte replaced Lautaro with Ivan Perisic, and especially after he replaced Hakimi with ex-Roma player Alexander Kolarov, the momentum quickly switched in Roma's favor. Roma were all over Inter and got the equalizer from a center back of their own. I'm not exactly sure how Mancini managed to score with the back of his head, but his shot found the corner of the goal. That was the final goal of the game. It ended 2-2, which is a result that every team at the top of the table was happy to see. Moving on, the other big match of the weekend was Juventus against Sassuolo. Juventus won this one 3-1, but that score doesn't really tell the whole story. Danilo, Aaron Ramsey, and Cristiano Ronaldo scored for Juve, and Gregoire de Frel scored for Sassuolo. The first half finished 0-0, and even though Juventus had the better chances, Sassuolo were holding their own and causing Juventus problems. Gianluca Frabotta had a glorious chance after a clever backheel from Weston McKennie, but he skied his shot over the bar. Vlad Kirikes made an important sliding block on Cristiano Ronaldo, who entered this match having not scored in two consecutive matches, which is the first time that's happened since he joined Juventus. Sassuolo looked dangerous on the counterattack, and both Leonardo Bonucci and Rodrigo Bentancourt picked up yellow cards using professional fouls to stop the counter. On the Bonucci foul, there was a question as to whether he should have been shown a straight red for fouling Caputo as the last man back, but the referee determined it was not a scoring opportunity. To make matters worse, Paolo Dybala picked up an injury and had to be taken out in the 42nd minute. That would normally be a big loss for most clubs. It's not so bad when you have a player like Dejan Kulusevski waiting in the wings. Approaching the end of the half, it seemed like this match could go either way, but right before the break, Pedro Obiang made a very stupid tackle on Federico Chiesa. Initially, Obiang was shown a yellow, but after a quick VAR review, the card was upgraded to a red. Chiesa may have oversold the paint a little bit, but it was pretty clear that Obiang was late on the tackle and put his studs into the top of Chiesa's foot, so Sassuolo had to play the entire second half with only 10 men. Even before the red, it felt like it was only a matter of time before Juve got their goal. That came only 5 minutes into the second half. Danilo connected really well on a shot from well outside of the box to beat Andrea Consigli. That was Danilo's third goal since coming to Serie A. His last goal was against Sassuolo as well, and his first goal was against Napoli. Sassuolo responded really well, equalizing only 8 minutes later after falling behind and they did it with a man down. Gregoire de Frel, who started in place of the injured Domenico Berardi, made a great touch to receive Ahmed Traore's pass before finishing past Chesney. What made it even more impressive was the touch to control the ball and the shot were with his weaker right foot. Credit to Juve though, they kept on playing. Keza hit the outside of the post in the 66th minute. Consili made a ridiculous save on Ronaldo in the 74th minute. And in the 77th minute, Vlad Kirikish made a nice block on Aaron Ramsey. That was followed by an impressive spell of possession that had me thinking Sassuolo might just be able to hold Juventus off. Sassuolo kept the ball for about 2 minutes and completed 36 passes with Juventus barely touching the ball. But Juve persisted and went back ahead in the 82nd minute. Somehow Gianluca Frabotta's cross got past 3 Sassuolo defenders. Everyone got on Kirikesh for letting the ball go. He was certainly culpable, I'm not exactly sure what he was doing there. But Tolian got nutmegged on the pass and Giorgos Kyriakopoulos was late to pick up Ramsey's run as well. Ronaldo put the game away in stoppage time. Danilo played a gorgeous long ball pretty much from his own byline. Ronaldo did really well to take the ball down before finishing past Consili. Ronaldo probably could have played the square ball to an open Alvaro Morata, but knowing Morata, he probably would have been offside. 
So Juve went on to win 3-1. Atalanta beat Benevento 4-1, but like the Juve match, the score doesn't tell the whole story. Atalanta left this one pretty late. Josip Ilicic, Rafael Toloi, Duvan Zapata, and Luis Muriel scored for Atalanta, while Marco Sao scored the lone goal for Benevento. Josip Ilicic was easily the man of the match. If this match was any indication, he's returned to the form that he showed before the lockdown. He was doing wonders with his feet which made you forget that the pitch was in horrible condition because of the rain. He pulled the strings on just about everything positive Atalanta did in this match including scoring the opening goal. He was a little fortunate that the ball fell to him after a really poor header from Dom Fulham but Ilicic still had a ton of work to do. He cut in to split between Marco Sao and Federico Barba before finishing past Lorenzo Montipo. Ilicic nearly scored a second just before the break from a set piece, but his shot from outside the box curled into the far post and stayed out. Ilicic didn't get an assist on Atalanta's second goal, but it was his shot that Montipo pushed straight into the path of Toloi. He did get an assist on Zapata's goal, picking out the Colombian's run to the back post. That was one of numerous crosses that Ilicic played to the back post on the night, and Atalanta probably should have scored more had the finish on the other end been better. Both Robin Gosens and Duven Zapata missed glorious chances in the first half off Ilicic crosses. Despite all those chances, Benevento still managed to make a game of it. Marco Sao equalized on a gorgeous cross by Christian Pastina, who made his Serie A debut off the bench. That goal was really Benevento's first scoring opportunity of the match. Their only other chance to that point was an ambitious effort from Gianluca Lapadula from 40 yards out in the first half. Benevento held off until the 69th minute, then Toloi and Zapata scored only 2 minutes apart and the game was pretty much over after that. Zapata has now scored 5 goals in his last 5 matches. Luis Muriel added the 4th with a beautiful shot from outside of the box. He only played about 17 minutes and still had at least 3 quality scoring chances. He's now scored 6 in his last 5 and he's only started in one of those matches. Finally, Joachim Meili made his debut off the bench. He officially joined Atalanta on January 4th, but the club has been in discussion with him for quite some time now. I was actually surprised about that. Gasperini usually makes players wait a while to learn his system and get to a level of fitness required to play in it. It was a good while before we saw Sam Lammers or Alexi Miranchuk play. Atalanta have now won 5 and drawn 2 of their last 7 matches, and all of a sudden, it's looking like they might qualify for the Champions League for a third year in a row. Finally, Lazio beat Parma 2-0 on goals from Luis Alberto and Felipe Caicedo. That's probably not how Roberto de Versa imagined his return to Parma going, but Parma definitely looked better in this match than they have in their previous ones. The first half was actually pretty even, both keepers made big saves, Pepe Reina made a brilliant save on an Andreas Cornelius header, and Luigi Seppe made a great save on a Felipe Caicedo effort. Both sides also had shots narrowly missed the target as well, but Lazio definitely had more chances and that play carried into the second half. Lazio broke the deadlock 10 minutes into the second half with three of Lazio's most important players not named Chiro Immobile linking up. Manuel Lazzari intercepted Luigi Seppe's long ball which fell for Sergei Milinkovic-Savic. He played the return ball to Lazzari on the wing who cut the ball back for Luis Alberto around the penalty spot. The Spaniard calmly rolled his shot into the bottom corner to give Lazio the lead. Immobile was involved in Lazio's second goal. He played a lovely return pass to Milinkovic-Savic to complete the give and go. Milinkovic-Savic chipped over Sepe and Caicedo smashed his volley into the empty goal. I think the chip might have gone in but that was definitely the right play to make by Caicedo. Despite being down by two goals, 
Parma weren't able to create much after that. Gervinho tried to take on the world a few times, but it was Lazio who had the better chances for the balance of the match. Credit to Simone Inzaghi, he removed both Luis Alberto and Felipe Caicedo immediately after their goals. Our good friend Jerry Mancini has been begging Inzaghi to rest guys and let some other players play, so Inzaghi must have heard him. So after the previous round was not so good for us, this round went quite well. Milan remained 9 points ahead of us, but we gained ground on Inter and Roma. They are now only 6 and 3 points clear of us, and we have a game in hand. Juventus remained 2 points clear of us with their win over Sassuolo, who have now dropped to 7th place. Atalanta remain level on points, but currently they are above us in the table because they have a better goal differential. Head-to-head -head is the actual tiebreaker, so a win or a draw in the return fixture would ensure that if we finish level on points, we'd be higher in the table. Lazio remained in 8th place and Hellas Verona remained in 9th place with their 2-1 win over Crotone. Finally, despite their loss, Benevento remained in 10th place. Fortunately, there's no midweek Serie A this week, however, there is the round of 16 of the Coppa Italia. We'll preview Napoli's match against Empoli in Part 3. In the final part, we'll preview our match on Wednesday against Empoli. This is the first time these two clubs will meet in the Coppa Italia. Empoli are currently in first place in Serie B with a record of 9 wins, 7 draws, and only 1 loss. That is partly because this team just does not give up. On 7 separate occasions this season, Empoli have come from behind to salvage either a win or a draw. Leonardo Mancosu is Empoli's top scorer. He's tied with Venezia's Francesco Forte and Pordenone's Davide Dia on 9 goals, only 1 back of Lecce's Massimo Coda. That tally includes a poker that Mancosu scored in a 5-2 win over Virtus Santella. Mancosu has also scored three goals already in the Coppa Italia. All three of them came in Empoli's 4-2 win over Benevento in the third round. Prior to that, Empoli beat Serici Club Renate 2-1 and after Benevento, they beat Brescia 3-0. So Empoli are effectively the same quality as a newly promoted Serie A team. That means we should beat them but we should not take anything for granted. We know that newly promoted clubs can beat us on their day like we saw against Spezia. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Empoli are coached by Alessio Dionisi, who prefers a 4-3-1-2 formation. Journeyman Alberto Brignoli should start in goal. Dimitrios Nicolao and Simone Romagnoli are the preferred choices at center back. As far as I can tell, Simone has no relation to Milan's Alessio Romagnoli. Fabian Parisi is the preferred left back and Ricardo Fiamozzi is the preferred right back. Leo Stulak is the regular starter in the center of the midfield. Dionisi rotates between three wingers, Nicholas Haas, Samuel Ricci, and Simon Zerkowski. Haas has the flexibility to play on either wing and starts just about every match. If Ricci starts, Haas will play on the left and Ricci will play on the right. If Zerkowski starts, Haas will play on the right and Zerkowski will play on the left. This is the same Samuel Ricci that Napoli were linked to last summer, so hopefully we get to see him play. I'll go with Haas on the left and Ricci on the right. Leonardo Mancosu typically plays as the Trequartista, though he has featured up top as well. 
Dionisi also likes to rotate the front two as well between Juve Primavera player Marco Olivieri, ex-Lecce player Andrea Lamantia, Stefano Moreo, and Ryder Matos. I'll go with Lamantia and Moreo to start in this one. For Napoli, I think Gattuso will continue to line up in the 4-2-3-1. Looking at the schedule, I think we need to work backwards to figure out who will start in goal for this match. I suspect Gattuso will want Ospina in goal for the Supercoppa Italiana game against Juventus, as well as for the Fiorentina match before that. Gattuso rarely starts the same keeper three matches in a row, so for that reason, I think we'll see Alex Meret play in this one. At the back, Costas Malone. At the back, Costas Manolas has a grade 1 thigh strain, which is the same injury that Koulibaly had, so he should be out for a little while. That means Nikola Maksimovic will definitely start, and the question is who does he get paired with? The answer to that question really depends on whether Koulibaly is fit to play. He's been a full participant in training this week, so I think this would be a good opportunity to integrate him back into the squad. So I'll go with Koulibaly in the starting 11, with the expectation that he's replaced by Amir Rachmani around the 67th minute. With Giovanni Di Lorenzo suspended for the Fiorentina game, I think he'll almost certainly start in this match at right back. That also means that for the Fiorentina match, Elsie Kusai will likely play at right back and Mario Rui will play at left back, so I think both of those guys will rest for this match. That means Fauzi Gulam will start at left back. The center of the midfield is very tricky. Diego Deme played the final few minutes of the Udinese game, so he should be available. Tiemoy Bakayoko has played three games in eight days, so I think he's due for a rest. So I'll go with Stanislav Lobotka to start with Fabian in the double pivot, like we saw against Alkmaar in the Europa League. Lorenzo Insigne will likely start on the left wing as he rarely misses a match, with Elif Almas available as a substitute. Matteo Politano should give Chucky Lozano a rest on the right wing. I'm expecting Dries Mertens to return in the 10 spot to give Piotr Zielinski a rest, though I can also see Zielinski coming off the bench to relieve Mertens at some point. And with Petania coming off early against Udinese, I think he will start again at striker. So those are the starting lineups. Next, let's review our three keys to the match. Our first key to the match is we need to treat this game like it's a Serie A match. I'm not suggesting that we should start our best 11, quite the contrary, Serie A is definitely a higher priority than the Coppa Italia, and the Europa League probably is too, at least from a financial perspective, but as I mentioned, Empoli is currently top of the Serie B table, so they're not to be taken lightly. Also, even though we'll be on a high from that last minute win over Udinese, this is a good opportunity to score some goals and regain some confidence because our recent performances against weaker clubs certainly haven't instilled any confidence. On the flip side, if we somehow don't win this match, it could be pretty damaging to our confidence given the mental fragility of this team. The second key to the match is we need to reintegrate some of our key players that are returning to the squad. We have both Dries Mertens and Kaladu Koulibaly in our starting 11. We'll see if they actually start, but if they don't, then we need them to at least get some minutes off the bench because we're going to need both of them for the Fiorentina game on the weekend. With Manolas getting hurt, we're down to three center backs, and as we saw against Udinese, the combination of Maksimovic and Rachmani isn't going to cut it. I'm fine with either of them playing with Koulibaly, but not with each other, at least not yet. Despite his poor outing against Udinese, I do believe in Rachmani, and I think he will be fine. Up top, we need Mertens back to relieve some of the pressure on both Andrea Petania and on Piotr Zielinski. We've really struggled to score with the absence of Mertens and Osimhen. Who knows when Osimhen will return? His test on Monday still came back positive, and there are rumors swirling around that he still has pain in his shoulder, so we definitely need to get Mertens back in match fitness. 
Our third key to the match is we need to keep a clean sheet. That's not going to be easy though. Empoli are tied with Cittadella for most goals in Serie B. They have also scored 9 goals in their 3 Coppa Italia matches so far. We have failed to record a clean sheet in 8 consecutive matches in all competitions. With goals coming at a bit of a premium lately, we need our defenders to help our attackers out a little bit here. And for our defenders to succeed, our midfielders need to do a better job helping out at the back. We've really struggled to defend the counterattack, not just lately, but going back all the way to last season as well as Gattuso says our guys panic at the first sign of danger now I'm on the record saying that the decision to sell Alan was the correct one and I still feel that way with everything that happened but we're definitely missing the way that Alan used to play we don't have that player that can play strong and confidently win tackles the more I watch this team play the more I feel like Fabian will be sold in the summer He's never been great defensively, but he's also not contributing a whole lot in the attack any longer, which means he is probably more valuable to other clubs than he is to us at the moment. I think we're going to see Fabian start to play less. With Mertens coming back, Zielinski will have more time to play in the double pivot, and it seems Diego Demis' stock is rising again. The head official for this match is Antonio Giulia. He's officiated two Napoli matches, both in 2020 and both were controversial. The first was a 3-2 loss to Lecce. With Lecce up 2-1 in that match, Arkadouj Milik appeared to be fouled in the box. Milik went down in dramatic fashion, but the replay showed that there was contact. Julia consulted with the VAR, but he did not visit the monitor to see for himself, and Milik was shown a yellow for simulation. The second match was a 2-1 loss to Parma, in which all three goals were scored from the penalty spot. The first was at the very end of the first half, Alberto Grassi got inside of Mario Rui, who looked like he was trying to get out of the way of Grassi and just barely grazed him with his chest. Grassi went down and the penalty was given. The second penalty was awarded to Napoli after Grassi blocked the Insigne shot with his hand. Grassi did not appear to make his body bigger. Julia consulted with the VAR not to determine whether or not there was a handball, but rather to determine whether the handball occurred in the box or not. VAR determined that Grassi's hand was inside the box, so the penalty was given. Finally, the third penalty was awarded late in the match. Dejan Kulusevski did well to get around Koulibaly and dribbled into the area. Koulibaly caught up to the pacey winger before Kulusevski lunged in the path of Koulibaly. He was clearly on his way to ground before any contact was made, but the penalty was still given. So we definitely don't have a good track record with Julia. His assistants are Marco Scatralli and Andrea Zingarelli. The fourth official is Manuel Volpi and Alejandro Di Paolo is on the VAR assisted by Federico Longo. For my prediction, I'll go with a 3-0 win on goals from Lorenzo Insigne, Matteo Politano and Dries Mertens. I think that late winner against Udinese will give this team a much needed boost. I'd love to say that if it's not that, then Gattuso will give them the boost, but even Gattuso is struggling to motivate this club. It's been a while since we've won a match with ease. The last time we did that was against Crotone. I know we beat Cagliari 4-1, but that did not feel like a dominant performance. Normally, I don't like these midweek fixtures, but I think this one in particular could be well-timed. So that will do for this preview. I hope you enjoy the game. That will also do it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends and give us a 5-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of us, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti 5, or you can find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Pod. We'll talk to you again later in the week to review this match and to preview our next one against Fiorentina. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre!